I would love for you to have a, a Bible open as we study this morning, and when it's time for me to read, I may not hesitate much, so if you want to find that now, feel free. If you want to look, grab a, a Bible underneath the chair in front of you, that's on 1136, page 1136, so you can find, find that. Many of you probably recognize the name and know something of the story of Martin and Gracia Burnham. Um, some of you might have even been in here while Gracia told their story years ago, um, which was, that was a good time. And then a few of you might even remember when Martin and Gracia lived in Imperial years ago before they left for the mission field with what was then called New Tribes Mission. Um, they, uh, they served 17 years. Martin was a, uh, a pilot, like a jungle pilot. It's very similar to what uh, the Dawsons are going to go do that we support, uh, Ryan and Jenny. Uh, after 17 years um, in that ministry as missionaries, they were gifted, they were blessed with the opportunity to celebrate a wedding anniversary at a, at a resort in, um, in the Philippines. And so they took that opportunity and they, they checked into their res resort. But unfortunately, that was exactly the time that the, the Muslim terrorist group Abu Sayyaf chose to raid that particular result, resort and take captives you know, Westerners you know, staying in a resort, they probably have money uh, to, and to hold those hostages as uh, for ransom. And so Martin and Gracia were taken hostage uh, deep into the jungles of the Philippines. They were kept in very primitive conditions for over a year. And uh, tragically, during a, a rescue operation by the Filipino army, Martin was shot and killed and uh, Gracia was, was brought home to their very suddenly fatherless three children. Um, if you want to read more about her story, this book, um, it's a little, um, it's been around a while now. It was a long time ago. It was like right after 9-11 when all that went down. But this book is always on the bookshelves out there. It's called In the Presence of My Enemies. Um, it's very good. I really recommend it. But I want to tell you what to me, is the most striking thing about Gracia's story, her testimony. Um, it's something that, if I remember this book correctly, it's been a long time since I read it. It's not even in this book. And this book's great. To me, what, what struck me the most about Gracia Burnham's testimony is not uh, the details of the conditions they were kept in, or the, the rescue, uh, Martin's death, uh, how the Lord continued to work on them as, as a couple, as Christians, while they were hostages. To me, the, what struck me the most about her testimony is how she was able to react toward the men who had kidnapped her, held her for ransom, and were responsible for the death of her husband. She prayed and prays for them. 
She shared the gospel with them because she once wanted them to know her Savior. She visited some of them in their Filipino prison. And she supported them financially in prison. She was sending them money. Now, what is it that could motivate? What is it that could possibly motivate someone to behave in that manner toward men who had treated them so terribly? The most natural reaction in the world would have been for Gratia to hate those men with a passionate hate. Something that she will admit to you, she did at times. But when someone believes the gospel of Jesus Christ, when someone's been reconciled to God, believes the gospel, that when Jesus was on the cross, he was absorbing the punishment that the Gracia Burnham deserved for her sins. And she's been set free from the penalty of her sins. And then when someone in that Romans 12, 1 sense understands the most logical thing I can do, the thing that really makes the most sense is that I would just give my entire life back to that God who saved me. Whatever he says goes. He's a better steward of my life than I am. What he says I should do is actually the best thing I can do. When someone gets there in their life, something greater than hate is required. Something greater than hate for those who hurt us is required and commanded. We're in a section of the book of Romans, the larger section, everything we study from Romans 12, 1 through halfway through uh, chapter 15 will be about practically what it looks like to live life as a Christian. Paul calls it being a living sacrifice. I'm going to give my life back to God as a sacrifice, alive, holy, pleasing to him. I want to know what God wants. I want to do that. I want to be different from the world, Paul said. I want to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, starting with the way I think, starting with the way I think about myself. Everything we've talked about since then is about what that looks like. And in this smaller sort of section within that section, for the last three weeks, we've been talking about what it means to love people. Because part of being that living sacrifice is to love others. When I say love others, here's what I'm always talking about. A biblical definition of love. This is our working definition for love. Real love is the desire to see and the work put towards seeing God's best done in someone else's life. What would God say is best in your life? If I love you, that's what I desire to see. If I love you, I'm willing to put work in towards seeing that happen. That's love. And Paul's been, he told us that's what we're commanded to do. Last week, he told us how hard it can be. There's a cycle that we've got to stay in. That's last week's passage. 
And so the last two weeks have been pretty difficult. But you ain't seen nothing yet. Because <laughs> it gets harder today. Because Paul is going to tell us today how God wants us to treat those who mistreat us. Now, full disclosure, or a, a bit of a disclosure anyway, before we talk about, Paul's going to tell us that we can't not to retaliate, not to seek personal vengeance when people hurt us. But before I say that, because it's going to be a week before we get to next week's sermon, actually, next week will be Christmas sermon, so it'll be two weeks. Um, I do want to say this. If, like, if someone is abusing you, call the authorities, okay? Um, it is okay. Paul's going to tell us next week, or next time we study Romans, uh, the, why God gave us government and authorities in general, not just government, but authorities in the church, authorities in families. Um, part of the reason we have those authorities is so people who do what is wrong get punished for doing what is wrong. So you're not doing anything wrong if you let the authorities know that someone is doing something illegal, harmful. In fact, it can often be the most loving thing you can do even for that person. Because if I really love someone who is abusing me or someone else, then I, I'm not just trying to maintain some sort of peace. I want to see God's best done in their life, and what they're doing is not God's best. So sometimes love mandates that I abhor what is evil, like Paul told us before. So, so I, just, I just want to put that out there so I'm, I'm, what I'm saying today is not misunderstood. Our legal system, whether anyone uh, recognizes it or not, is based on um, the Old Testament law. And, and one foundational principle in God's law for Israel was that we don't have to personally avenge like crimes and wrongs. Israel as a whole was supposed to do that so that I can be free to forgive while the county the state, the nation, punishes those who are, who are wrong. Um, more on that in, in a couple of weeks. So like, Gracia Burnham was free to forgive the people who, the men who kidnapped her, right? She forgave them, but she wasn't trying to like break them out of prison. She could let the Philippine government do what governments are supposed to do with kidnappers, but she could forgive them personally and not be out for her own vengeance. Okay, end of disclosure statement. We good there? We clear with that? Good. Because what Paul's about to tell us is hard enough. Romans 12, 17 through 21. Read this way. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Never take your own revenge, beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, 
I will repay, says the Lord. But, or rather, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's our passage. It can be broken uh, really easily and kind of obviously into two parts. The first part is verses 17 through 19, where Paul tells us in a couple of different ways that we are not allowed to evil paybacks. He says it a couple of ways. He starts, do not repay anyone evil for evil. And then in verse 19, he just says the same thing a different way. Do not avenge yourselves, beloved. That's the main idea of the first half of this passage. Now, is there anything more natural than the desire for retaliation when you get hurt? It is the most normal, the most natural response in our bodies, I think. It's, it can be, it's obvious, it's normal, it's natural. It can be consuming, can it? It can be almost overwhelming and feel like I, I just have to. It can be addictive. Here's what I mean by that. When someone wrongs you, how, how easy is it to get stuck in your free time? You just constantly go right back into thinking about what you'd like to say to that person. Oh, when I get in that right, so, oh, he's going to say this, and I'm going to give him one of these, and he's going to, oh, man. Just constantly, two weeks later, spare time driving down the road, you don't like the song on the radio, right back into that same consuming desire for vengeance. Is that, is that just me, or do you guys... It's normal. It's natural. But family, make no mistake about it. It ain't good. In fact, it's wrong. In fact, Paul tells us what God's opinion of it is. In one little word, what is that word? Evil. It's evil. It might seem like a strong word, but first, I didn't make it up. I mean, there it is. And you know, it just seems like too strong of a word. Like, because it doesn't feel evil when I'm just giving that person what he really does deserve. It doesn't feel evil. In fact, if I'm honest, it kind of feels, it kind of feels good. Evil often does. It wouldn't be tempting if it didn't feel good. That's why it's so tempting. That's what it is. I know we're just not supposed to be controlled by this. We're supposed to be controlled by Christ. And I know on some level, we all know that what Paul is saying here is correct. We teach it to our kids. Your kids start fighting and hitting each other, right? And then they want to tell you who started it. And we all, as parents, it's something like this. You can't control what your brother or sister does. You can only control 
What? How you respond. Right? It's easy preaching. Tough living. It's like we know this is right. It's just so hard. Paul says doing something, doing anything with the purpose of hurting someone back to avenge myself is evil. He goes on to say, consider what is good before all people, or your Bible might say something like, uh, be careful to or pay attention to do what is right in the eyes of all people. This is one of those half verses that if we just cut this out and like put it on a screen out of its context, we wouldn't even think this is in the Bible. Because it, like, think about this. If I told you, hey, you make sure and do what everyone else thinks is right. What would you say? Well, that's terrible advice. What's Paul saying here? This has to, this is a good example of why it's important to read stuff in its context. This has to have something to do with not returning evil for evil, not taking vengeance. Paul says, you just have to think about what would be good in everyone's eyes in this situation. Here's what I think Paul means. Someone hurts me. My treatment of that person should be what everyone would think was good if they didn't know what that person did to me. There's nothing I can do in retaliation, personal vengeance that's okay, that wouldn't be okay if I was just doing it like as the first step. Does that make sense? Like if it was preemptive. Don't repay evil for evil. In fact, don't do anything back to someone that everyone wouldn't think was okay if they didn't know any of the rest of the story. Paul goes on. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live, live at peace with all people. Here's our directive in verse 18. Live at peace with all people. But Paul grants that may not always be possible. He says, if possible, first, Paul grants there may be times where a Christian can't live at peace with a certain person. Have there been areas of the world, time periods, where Christians just can't live at peace with that Christians have to, have to hide, have to flee, have to go underground? Yes, for sure. Paul doesn't give us any examples because this is just about general life, what it looks like to be a Christian. And Paul just says, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all peace, people, which just means if there's hostilities that don't make peace possible, those hostilities can't come from me if I'm a Christian. The energy in this conflict can't come from me. The impetus of the hostilities can't come from me. I'm not justified in having those. Now again, Paul's already told us to be after real love. I may have to confront. I may have to disclose. But that's got to be about that person's honor in love because I want God's best for that person, not because I want to see them hurt also. Because Paul says, do not avenge yourselves, beloved. Avenging yourself is somebody hurt me. I want them to hurt, pay. 
It's evil. It's natural. It's normal. Believe me, I get it. But do not avenge yourselves, beloved. Instead, give place to God's wrath or leave room for God's wrath. And remember that it is written multiple places, actually, in the Bible. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. One reason it's so hard to, to pull this off, to not retaliate, is just the simple injustice of the thing, right? That person hurts me. And I want to be like, doesn't anybody see what that jerk just did? Or has been doing? Or who she really is? Someone should do something. He or she shouldn't get away from this, with this. And then somewhere in the back of my mind, a little voice goes, hey, I'm someone who could do something to make them pay. Because after all, they can't just get away with this. Because that's what it feels like. It's so unjust that I am hurt and I can't make them hurt. It seems unjust. You know why that seems unjust? Because that's unjust. It is. Justice, though, will be served. God's line here, this is the God of the Old Testament, God the Father speaking, vengeance belongs to me. It doesn't belong to you. God says, vengeance is mine, and he gives us this promise. What's the promise at the, at the bottom of that screen right there? What does God promise? I will repay. That person who hurt me, who sinned against me, the reason I feel like justice is not being served is because I forget God promised justice is going to be served. God is going to punish Every single sin that has ever been sinned or will ever be sinned. How do I know that? Because he just promised us. I will repay. So if that person who hurt you is not a Christian, is not a believer, has never believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, a day is coming where the full wrath of God is going to fall on that person. And that is a terrible, terrible thing. And honestly, my or your measly little payback that you're going to put just does not even hold a candle to what is coming. But that really shouldn't make us feel good. Now, the other side of that is if the person who hurt you is a Christian, has believed in Jesus, in that case, God is going to punish their sin where? on Jesus Christ. And here's where, here's what's happening then. When I decide, what I'm really doing when I pay someone back is I'm telling God, I really don't trust you. I don't think you're gonna do enough job punishing sin. You probably need my help here. That, that's really what it is. And when we seek vengeance on another Christian, we're basically telling God, you, you didn't punish Jesus adequately. For that one, we are never wrong when we're angry at sin, family. We're never wrong when we're angry at sin. 
We're never wrong when we believe someone deserves to pay for that sin they just sinned. We're never wrong when we feel like that. We're just wrong when we decide we are going to be the one that helps that other person pay, that makes that other person pay. That's when we, we have stepped into a job we are not qualified to do. So that's the first half of the passage. Oh, one more word I want to point out before we go to the second half, though. Do not avenge yourselves, beloved. Your Bible, your translation might say something like, dear friends, which is a completely fine way to translate this Greek word. But um, I don't think Paul was telling the, the Roman Christians that he's writing this letter to don't avenge yourselves, my dear friends, like Paul and them were real close friends. And the reason I don't think that is because he's never met these people. We already learned that at the very beginning and the very end of the letter. He doesn't know these folks. Now, they're siblings in Christ, so it would be okay for him to call them as friends, even though they've never met. That's okay. We can do that in letter writing. But here's what I think Paul wants them to remember. Anytime you are hurt, sinned against, and hurt, oh Christian. The cure for that hurt is, is never to be found in the payment of the, by the other person. That's what your heart will tell you. It's what my flesh tells me. The only thing that's going to make me feel better is if that person gets it and I play a role in making them get it. Oh, that's going to feel good. No. The cure for my hurt has to come from the one who loves me best. I think Paul is saying, do not avenge yourselves. Beloved, you are, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are God's beloved. You are loved perfectly and completely by the supreme judge of the universe. And he will not let that sin against you go unpunished. The cure for our hurt must come from the love of God, not the wrath of man. That's the first half of this passage. You know, when we're little, one more word about that. When a little kid falls down, skins her knee, she runs to mom, she just wants to climb up on mom's lap. Mamas have been kissing boo-boos for thousands and thousands of years. You know why? It helps. Because what really cures my hurt is love, not vengeance. We still need this. It's just his lap I need to climb up in. All right, first half. No evil paybacks allowed. No vengeance, no personal vengeance allowed, right? If punishment needs to be taken care of, the county, the state, the government, the church needs to take care of discipline, right? Not me personally. Now, if Paul stopped right there, would this be hard enough? I have bad news. He doesn't stop there. Paul doesn't say, you just have, to, all you have to do is just bite your tongue Keep from saying those words that feel like you just have to say. Keep from punching fools and you're fine. He doesn't. 
He says, no vengeance, no paybacks. Instead, rather, there's something I want you to do. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. Whoa. Paul's obviously using some sort of metaphor with the whole give him something to eat, give her something to drink. Like this can't just mean, well, if somebody hurts me, I just have to make sure they've got enough food and then I'm out. Right? <laughs> right? Or make them a sandwich. Like if they have one of those mail slots in their door, I can shove that baby through there and, and get my car and leave. And they, hey, I'm, I gave him something to eat. I'm good. This has to be about food and drink are like our most basic needs. Right? Paul says, hey, instead of retaliating, what does that person really need? What's the answer to that question, by the way? What's that person really need? They don't know Christ. They need Christ. They do know Christ. They need his love. They need to be a living sacrifice. How can you promote that in that person? That's what we're supposed to do. And then Paul tells us two reasons why we should want to do this. The first reason is really unclear to tell what he's talking about. The second one's extremely clear to tell what he's talking about. So Paul says, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. So meet, meet our enemy's basic needs. Why? Well, Paul says, for in doing this, you will be heaping burning coals on his head. And some of you read that and think, something I can finally use in here, right? Uh, I, there's a few people I would have loved to dump a bucket of burning hot coals on their head. I'm going to write that down and leave before he says anything else, right? I'm not even going to wait for the coals to get hot. I'm just going to do the lighter fluid and the match right there. Uh, call it a day. It's in the Bible. Uh, what does Paul mean? This is obviously a metaphor. Again, it has to do something uh, uh, with not returning evil for evil. This, is, this one's really unclear. There are biblical scholars who love the Lord and believe in the inerrancy of Scripture differ on what Paul talks about. I'll give you the three major ideas here of what Paul could mean. The first one um, maybe makes the most sense from an argument standpoint. But anyway, it, the first one, by the way, he's quoting Solomon. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing this, you'll be uh, heaping burning coals on his head. That's from Proverbs. So this is now 3,000 years old. Um, and in he, apparently, though I've never read this, but apparently in ancient, ancient, before Solomon's day, ancient Egyptian literature, when someone changed his or her mind, there was a, there's a, the symbolism for that was their head becoming hot like burning coals. And so one idea is what these authors, Solomon first and then Paul next, was saying is if you meet, if you just go after the, the, the deepest needs of your enemy, they're more likely to change their mind. That's a, that's a good application of this passage. It's very possible. I just don't think Paul was assuming that these Roman Christians were up to snuff on their like ancient Egyptian metaphors. It's kind of hard for me to believe that that's what Paul meant. It's a good application, though. Um, 
probably the slightly majority opinion is that Paul's just talking about shaming people, like uh, the, these burning coals are somehow a, a symbol for shame. Somebody hurts you, you go after their deepest needs, and suddenly they feel a sense of shame for what they did to you. Very possible. I'll tell you, it doesn't always happen. Um, and, I, and there's no place else that burning coals are a symbol for shame. Here's the one I sort of lean toward. Uh, it's more like this. Burning coals to me just sounds like judgment from God. Like we can find the idea of, of the, the, the sort of white hot heat being God's judgment. Here's what I think, I think Paul might be saying here. Your enemy go after their greatest needs. Once somebody has done something evil to me, do they deserve judgment from God? Yes. Yes, they do. And so, if I retaliate, guess who else deserves judgment from God? Me. This might be Paul's way of saying, listen, make sure that guy is the only one with the coals on his head in this situation. Make sure if he's going to continue to be evil, he's going to have to, it's just like, oh, just more judgment for you, but you're not getting any for yourself. It's probably the best I could do with that one. I ain't real sure. Not real sure. But any of those are good uh, applications anyway. Then Paul finishes with the second reason why we should want to do good toward those who are evil toward us. And this one's really clear. Verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is really the summary statement of the whole passage. The first part is, don't be overcome by evil. The second part is, actually do good instead of just biting your tongue. Now, if you think about this, logically in here, while we're all safe in church and you are not currently right now being hurt by someone, this will make perfect sense. Think about this. If someone is evil toward you, what's the only thing that's going to make that situation better? More evil? Like in science class, if you have this solution and you test the pH and it's acidic, can you pour more acid in the solution to, to make the, C, the pH better? No. The only thing that's going to make an evil situation less evil is by pouring good into that situation. Doesn't that make sense? Like right now? Would you do something for me? The next time you know I've been wronged and I've been hurt, and you know I'm angry. Would you remind me that still makes sense? Would you love me enough to go after my God's best in my life? Which will be that I do not return evil for evil and go after my own vengeance. Would you love me enough to do that? We should love each other enough. 
Even though, you know why we don't do that? Because we don't want that evil pointed at us. And it might be. So we go into last week's love cycle, right? Hey, I'm going to go after your best. And yes, you might hurt me, but I'm not going to return evil toward you either. But I want God's best in your life. So we have to be those kind of friends that are not yacht to friends, right? Yacht to, or I ought to. You know what I'd do if I were you? Oh, man, let me tell you, right? That feels good, but it ain't love. Paul says, do not be overcome by evil. Let me give you another way to think about this. Someone hurts you. It hurts. It stinks. It makes you angry. But listen, does that person who just did that to you, do they deserve to control your heart with their evil? Yes or no? No. Like, why do I let that person's evil control my heart that belongs to my Lord? Because I'm convinced if I chew on it, it'll feed my wrath and that will make me feel better someday. Lies. The only way to overcome evil in this world is by pouring good into an evil situation in an evil world. Right will prevail. Good will win in the end. Like, I've finished this book, okay? Good wins in the end. Love wins in the end. Real biblical love. We still have to confront. We still have to hate evil. All those things. But like, good wins. It works. It may not work immediately right now. But, but God's got this, and it's who he wants us to be. Now, we're ready to conclude, but I want to, this is maybe slightly a rabbit trail. It's not really a rabbit trail. What do you, it's like a frontage road. You know a frontage road that runs parallel off the side of the end? That's what we're going to be on now, okay? At the risk of being frank, family. Remind me, somebody say this out loud. Just in verse 20, who are we supposed to do good toward if our who? What's the word? Enemy. If your enemy is acting like your enemy, do good. Listen, some of us, our biggest struggle is we won't treat our spouses as well as God wants us to treat our enemies. We won't treat our brothers like our physical siblings. We won't treat our brothers and sisters in Christ as well as God says to treat our enemies. And we constantly make the list of how terrible this person is. And we rehash and re-chew on all the terrible things they've ever done. You know why? Because I feel like it justifies my evil behavior. And Paul says it doesn't. I think Paul would say, oh man, you got quite a list there. That person sounds like your enemy. Better find out what he really needs to eat. You should find out what he really, what she really thirsts for. 
and see if you could be a conduit toward meeting those real needs. This is why I started with this morning before our singing time. If we don't abide in Christ, what chance do we have of pulling this off? Zero is the chance. This is so hard. I don't condemn you for the way you have failed in these things because I have failed in these things constantly. But this is the biblical standard. This is what we will do while we are giving our bodies to God as a sacrifice. Why does God ask us to do such hard things? Because he's trying to conform us to the likeness of his son. You know, one one good uh, quality in a leader is a leader will never ask you to do something that the leader himself won't do. Isn't that right? And I'm not talking about me because I screw this up all the time. But if Jesus is going to ask us to be like this, he shouldn't ask us to be like something he's not, and he's not. His friend Peter wrote this about him. When Jesus was maligned, he did not answer back. When he suffered, he threatened no retaliation, but he committed himself to God who judges justly. My father's got this. Nobody's going to get away with anything. Everything that is now hidden is going to be made plain. There's nothing that is secret that won't be made known. This is all going to come out. I don't have to worry about the damages and the punishment. My father, this is how Jesus lived. Practically speaking, how do we do this? Here we are. Here's your enemy who harms you. You should be able to take this guy. Look at him. Come on. He's skinny. Um, No. All right. So your enemy has harmed you. Um, First, step one, you endure the harm without giving it back. That's the first part of this passage. I I do not retaliate, but I don't just sit there and and bite my tongue and and with all the willpower I have, just keep from swinging. Step two, I give my angry desires for payback to God. There's got to be forgiveness involved in there. God, this is how I sinned against you. You punished your son for my sins. Now I'm the ones hurting. I don't want to try to punish someone else for their sins. I know that's not what you want, God. This is really hard. Will you help me with this? Will you take, I'm just going to give you my anger. I'm going to give up my right to be about this person's punishment. That's forgiveness. Then, once I get somebody forgiven and I've given those desires for payback to God, I figure out, God, show me what they need and how I can go toward them in love, in real love. And listen, listen, God's best for them might be painful for them too. I'm not telling you you have to be their best friend, but they might need, they might need distance, they might need rebuke, they might need confronted, they might need all kinds of things. But they don't need me to be their punisher. Because they, that just makes me evil. Make sense? Raise your hand if you're going to start doing this perfectly from now on. Ready? Yeah, me either. But we can remind each other. We can walk through this with one another. We can love one another while we're trying to do this. 
It makes us like Jesus. And there maybe isn't any clearer testimony of faith in Christ than living like him in this way. Pray with me and we'll finish. Father God, thank you for your word, even the really hard parts, Lord, that uh, sometimes we wish weren't even in here. But God, this is how you treated us. When we sinned against you, you decided someone had to pay for my sin, and you chose you to be the one who paid. You refused to pour justice out on me, and you absorbed the wrath of God and the punishment I deserved on the cross. God, make me more like Jesus in this very difficult way. God, I I don't want to be hurt. I don't want my, my church family here to be hurt. But the next time we are, you remind us of this passage. Help us run to you and just get our cure and our love and our help from you. Refuse to believe the lie that what will make us feel better is our own vengeance. Help us see the stuff we're doing that really is vengeance that we call other stuff. Convict us of that. And God, grow us to the point where we can do good toward those who give us evil. Thank you for the blessing you have promised to those who will do that. We trust you. Make us more like Jesus in his name. Amen. Stand and finish it, literally.